Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through the November edition of our Premium Wine Club. Before we start talking about the wines that we actually have in the club today, uh, I thought it'd be really fun to uh, sort of go over some of the things that we've been thinking a lot about lately, and this one in particular has to do with vineyard labor. Um, You know, even for the sort of modest size wineries that we work with, usually somewhere around 10 hectares uh, as far as as vineyard space, Um, you can pretty much farm that land with a a couple people. Um, You know, you're going to be putting in a a lot of effort, but ultimately you you can do it with just a couple people. But when it comes to harvesting, then you really need additional labor. Um, you know, in some cases, you're going to need 20 plus people to come in for you know a couple weeks uh, in order to be able to harvest the grape when they're grapes when they're optimally ripe. Grapes don't stay perfectly ripe for very long, and certain grape varieties are uh, are quicker to become overripe than others are. Uh, something like Pinot Noir, for instance, can jump up in sugars quite quickly. Um, grapes like Zinfandel that are really notorious for uh, raisination, meaning that the grapes literally dry out and turn to raisins on the vine. This could increase your sugar levels and decrease your water levels quite quickly. Um, and so you need to harvest them in a hurry. And so trying to find labor... Uh, that's able to work for, you know, essentially one month of the year, if not even less than that, uh, is really challenging. And there's a couple things that I want to talk about on this on this sort of topic. And, uh, you know, we did an Instagram post about it earlier today, but, uh, you know, I thought that this would be another nice format to, you know, do some chatting about it in the in sort of a longer format. Um, so, one of the major issues is that uh, obviously the cost of labor is a huge component in uh, what ends up being the ultimate price of the wine. And uh, like everybody, uh, you know, we're on a budget. Uh, you can only afford to spend so much money on certain things and you have to cut costs where you can. And in order for things to be sustainable, they also need to be sustainable economically, meaning that they can sell their product. So uh, in a lot of regions all around the world, whether that be Canada, for instance, or whether that be, uh, you know, places like Austria or places like um, New Zealand, there is a lot of migrant labor that comes in for the grape harvest. Um, you know, in California, a really great example is a lot of uh, families come up from Mexico for uh, a couple months of the year, highly specialized labor that it, are, again, I've gotten to meet a lot of these families and they're incredibly talented when it comes to um, harvesting grapes. Uh, often they'll have other specialties as well, whether that be, you know, tying tomatoes, which is a super labor intensive job or, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but often the way that this works is there's these sort of Uh, exemption programs where you do not need to pay them your country's minimum wage, uh, provided you're paying for some of their transportation, uh, you know, for housing, accommodations, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the discussion right now is is how ethical that actual process is and how, uh, how desperate are we for wines to cost a certain amount if it's going to end up having a negative, you know, not only financial impact on people, but in some cases, uh, obviously people are being, the the system is being abused and they're not providing them with appropriate accommodations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The other side of that coin is that, you know, for a lot of these workers, this opportunity 
is very fruitful. Uh, they're able to, even though this it's a, a wage less than minimum wage in the country that they're working, in the country that they're coming for, you know, they, they could be coming from uh, situations of, you know, economic depression, um, you know, even less safe working conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And so for a lot of them, this is a really incredible opportunity to uh, get some money for the year to be able to bring back home. But again, it still ends up being that question of, of you know, sort of balancing out the equity here and, and uh, you know, just because the dollar amount uh, is higher than what they would earn at home, is that fair of us to pay them these amounts in order for us to keep wine inexpensive? Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of challenges here. The other problem with migrant labor is that uh, it fluctuates a lot from year to year. Um, you know, depending on the size of the crop, uh, you know, you could be shorthanded, or you know, in some cases, people come up here to work and then end up not having enough work to actually get done. Um, so it's it's this tricky balance for for everybody involved, and I, I don't think we have solutions that make sense yet, but it's just something that's worth thinking about and worth talking about. We talk a lot about things like soils and things like packaging and the stories behind the winemakers, but ultimately it's often these people that go, um, you know, sort of unthanked uh, for all their hard work and, you know, in some cases underpaid and, uh, you know, suffering through adverse conditions, they're often the ones who are getting left out of this conversation. And so I think that it's it's interesting uh, and important for us to, to, I don't know, sort of make some decisions and, and start thinking about how we want the, the wine industry to look. Um, the second way that wines get harvested, and, and this is the case with a lot of our producers, is that they have uh, stagiaires or, uh, you know, volunteers essentially that come out to the winery, people who are interested in learning more about wine, learning about viticulture, or honestly just want to participate in the production of products that they think are super cool. Um, there's a couple problems with this as well, though, uh, that have been brought up over the last couple years, which is that, um, A, obviously these winemakers have put a ton of time and in a lot of cases a lot of money into learning about their craft and to have somebody come out and do, you know, sort of a mediocre job in some cases uh, in order to be able to, um, you know, get knowledge from them essentially for free. Uh, you know, there's an imbalance there as well. We've heard this with a couple of our farmer friends where, uh, you know, although it sounds nice for you to be like, hey, I want to come volunteer. I'm willing to do it like for the experience. They, in some cases, are like, hey, like you're, you're taking my uh, information expertise that I've had to put a lot into, um, you know, that that is in some ways something that should be paid for it and, and they should be compensated for that. Vice versa, uh, you know, a lot of these people who are, are stagiaires are coming from backgrounds where they are unable to pay for that particular type of education, whether that be going to a winemaking school or agriculture school or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, so should they be compensated even though they're willing to do the work for free? Uh, should they be undervaluing themselves as workers? And not only that, but then we also have the additional impact of if these, you know, volunteers that, you know, if they're able to take a month off of work, they're potentially coming from a place of privilege and taking away potential job opportunities from these migrant laborers who are coming up and only really have this one opportunity uh, a year to, to get ahead. So the system is really complicated. Uh, then you factor in the fact that uh, 
you know, because of these up and downs in labor, uh, a lot of producers are looking towards alternatives like uh, machine harvesting. And machines are extremely expensive at first. You know, you're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars um, for a harvesting machine. Uh, and at the higher ends, you know, even even more than that, if you want to be incredibly delicate with the vines. But this is going to lead to lower quality. And, uh, you know, some people would argue otherwise, but I'm I'm a strong advocate for hand harvesting is always going to yield the highest quality. Um, and again, this one-time investment is going to save you money in the long run, but again, you're getting rid of uh, potential labor opportunities for, um, you know, these groups of people that, that you know, re- like rely on on this type of labor in order to make their, their salaries for the year. So you have that sort of coming in as a factor. Um, all these things are, are, again, very challenging, and it's hard to come up with an answer because when we put out the answer, which is that wine is too inexpensive for what it is, uh, people are like, oh, yeah, I would definitely spend more money on wine if I knew that that additional charge was going towards um, paying for vineyard workers. But we've seen it time and time again where if, if you do try and you know, increase the price, you really are alienating a huge amount of the market that that can't pay that amount. Um, and so there has to be some sort of reckoning at some point, and we do have to come up with some sort of system that does make sense. Uh, and again, we don't have the answers, but we're just saying that these are things that we should consider as we as we start, you know, tasting through wines. Uh, you should be thinking about the human impact of the things that we're drinking, not just about the environmental impact, not just about, uh, you know, how delicious something is or, uh, <laughs> you know, how Instagrammable, et cetera, et cetera. It's these other sort of things. And we find that the more that we try and have these conversations in, uh, in spaces like Instagram, you know, they sort of get glossed over really quickly. So, you know, we're kind of putting this out there in the podcast, you know, taking sort of 10 minutes at the start of this to, to have this conversation. Cause even though we have a very small contingent that listens to the podcast, uh, you know, hopefully they're the ones that we can get to. And, you know, when they sit down with their friends next time, they can have this conversation with them and, you know, pick their brains on whether they, they have some ideas for solutions. Um, you know, it's, uh, I don't think there is a clear answer. Everything's multifaceted here, but it's, it's not, uh, in a good spot right now. And we need to, we need to move forward, uh, to create sort of these more equitable spaces. And again, if you look at the people that are historically most affected by these inequalities, we're talking about the BIPOC population for sure, migrant workers coming from countries that are, are currently in, uh, you know, challenging financial, but also, you know, challenging political situations uh, where safety is a, a concern. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, again, it's something that we're thinking a lot about lately and, and trying to find better ways of uh, communicating these sort of injustices to people and then trying to find ways that we can actually make positive impacts, um, whether that, you know, at the very least is through education and then at the very most is through us making, you know, positive financial uh, impacts on on these people's lives and, and increasing the quality of life, you know, overall for everybody that we deal with all the way along the supply chain. Um, with the increase in prices that we're going to see over the course of the next year, which are going to be drastic to say the very least. Uh, you know, the cost of glass is going up for bottles. The cost of shipping has gone through the roof. Uh, I don't even want to begin to tell you about what we're, uh, you know, we're getting pinched on both sides. Uh, it's, it's, 
you know, it's going to be a huge challenge to keep these wines affordable. And, uh, you know, if we start talking about trying to, again, fix some of these other injustices, again, the price is just going to go up to a level that for most people is going to be inaccessible. So we need to come up with some sort of plan. And I'm curious to see what, uh, what everybody thinks that plan should be. Anyways, we're going to jump into a couple wines now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to that. I know it's not uh, always the most fun subject matter, but I think, uh, you know, coming from our position, the least we can do is is have, you know, a little less fun for 10 minutes to think about these things and, uh, you know, start trying to make some positive changes here. Uh, so the first wine that we have in today's wine club, um, I, I guess I should preface that this wine club is awesome. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited about the wines in this club. Uh, these are some of my favorite flavor profiles we've had. Uh, we tried to mix things up a lot. Um, I feel like we had a lot of wines that were sort of in the, the Pinot Noir and Gamay Noir kind of flavor profile. And uh, I wanted to again, that's, that's a lot of the wines that we work with is, are these sort of like lighter bodied, lighter flavored, uh, you know, styles. And so we really sort of went out of our way to sort of maybe find some, some different flavor profiles, especially in the red wines. And so I think this will be a pleasant surprise for a lot of people. Uh, you know, it's still us. So the alcohol levels are still quite low and restrained. There's not a ton of new oak or anything like that on the, on the wines that we have today. Um, but I think from a flavor profile perspective, you're going to be in for a treat, something totally new. Um, the first wine, Testalonga's Monkey Gone to Heaven, uh, named after the Pixies song, I believe, uh, with this awesome photo from uh, Burning Man on the cover of somebody riding a bicycle across a desert. It's definitely one of the more beautiful bottles we have in the portfolio, and I think the wine inside is equivalently beautiful. Uh, in this case, we have Mouvedre planted in Swartland. Swartland, again, we've talked about it a, a couple times over the years on this podcast, but um, just north of Cape Town in this sort of desert-like landscape that's, uh, you know, sort of mostly flat like what you'd see in Saskatchewan, but then with these beautiful mountains just, you know, sort of dotting the landscape. They kind of just, you know, appear out of nowhere is how it feels. Um, in this case, this vineyard uh, is planted on decomposed granite. Uh, decomposed granite are the classic soil types that you'll see in this particular region. Um, a lot of it being essentially eroded mountains. Uh, it's essentially sand now, uh, you know, from a texture perspective, um, but derived from granite. Uh, I feel like it gives the wines a very distinctive flavor profile uh, and one that I really hunt after all the time. Um, planted in 2001, so these are our mature vines, you know, comfortably settling into middle age when they're going to be most productive, make uh, incredibly consistent wines, still give good yields. Um, that being said, production here is incredibly small, 167 cases uh, for uh, the vintage that we're using Um we only get about 36 bottles a year of this wine, although it fluctuates. Some years we'll get 12 bottles, some years we'll get 36, and, and we can end up anywhere in between. Um, but yeah, for, for the last two years, we've only been able to get 36 bottles. Uh, so essentially just enough for the wine club, although we do have a couple more spaces in the wine club. So if anybody has friends, uh, you know, we can't do a ton of advertising for this thing because of the, the way that the laws are set up in Alberta. But, uh, if you wanted to advertise on our behalf and get people signed up for the wine club, we'd be infinitely grateful. Um, 
This wine fermented on skins as whole clusters for 10 days. So essentially this is semi-carbonic maceration. We've talked about carbonic maceration a million times on this show, so I won't get into the details, but essentially it's uh, it's they're doing this in order to um, extract some of the fruitier characteristics of the wine and, and give it a slightly different structure. Mouvedre, very famous for being quite tannic, quite spicy, quite intense. And so by undergoing carbonic maceration, you're ending up with something that's a little bit more balanced, a little bit more juicy, but still having that nice tannic structure, uh, the nice grip. One of the things that I really admire about Testalonga, um, which is made by our, our friends Craig and Carla Hawkins, uh, an amazing couple in in. Uh, in the sort of the most northern part of Swartland, um, they really uh, they're great at capturing freshness in a region that's famous for making very big wines. Um, you know, one of the things that Craig said that always stuck with me was this idea of chasing um, you know drinkability and complexity at the same time, which I think is incredibly hard. I do think it's quite easy to make a wine that's complex. I think it's quite easy to make a wine that's um, you know, delicious, but I think it's hard to do both at the same time. Uh, and honestly, across the range with him, he seems to do that. His wines are also incredibly, incredibly clean. He was one of the first natural winemakers in uh, in South Africa and has a ton of experience and really has gone to this methodology of, um, you know, a very centrist approach where the wines aren't super freaky. Uh, you know, they're not like the you know, the woo-woo, natty kind of end of the spectrum where, you know, it's cloudy for cloudiness's sake or funky for funkiness's sake. Uh, These wines are just very poised, very true expressions of the vineyard that they come from. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited to have this wine from a flavor perspective, um, you know, dark fruit characteristics, blackberries, plums, uh, mulberry, you know, things like that, like these sort of darker, uh, berry characteristics. There is some like fresh red fruit in there too. Um, but yeah, for me, it definitely always, Mouvedre usually has a nod towards black fruit. Not only that, but it has a very spicy quality, very black pepper, um, you know, almost a meatiness to it. And, the great thing is that it's carrying that meatiness, but it's still only 12.5% alcohol. So it's kind of the, the perfect combination of, of freshness and savoriness. Lots of wild herbs, a little bit of a smokiness here. Um, you know, this reminds me of really good Northern Rhone Syrah, um, but in this case made from Mouvedre from South Africa. Very surprising. Uh, the second wine that we have in today's tasting, also from South Africa. I love doing these side-by-sides where we have wines either from the same producer or from the same country or from the same grape variety, so you can kind of get a better picture of, of what that place is like. Um, when you have wines sort of on their own, it's very hard to slot them in with, you know, the entire spectrum of the of the wine you know, wine world. And so I think by having two wines from South Africa, from two unique regions, um, you know, you kind of get a better idea for the lay of the land and what those two places like to show. Uh, so this is coming from Stellenbosch, from uh, our friends Mick and Janine Craven, uh, really talented winemakers, young couple, um, you know, making some of the cleanest wines of this style in the country as well. Uh, again, I think uh, these two wines are definitely going to be classics, whereas the next wine in the wine club is going to be a little more outrageous, a little more on the wild side. Uh, this is just really good uh, Cabernet Sauvignon coming from Stellenbosch. So whereas the last wine was coming from the Swartland, which is 
inland, uh, quite dry, quite desert-like. Um, this is coming from the hills uh, around the town of, uh, of Stellenbosch. Uh, in this case, it's a subregion called Polgadry, which is very much influenced by the ocean. Um, you know, you can essentially see the ocean from this vineyard. You're getting all these cooling breezes off the ocean. Uh, you have the Humboldt current coming up from, you know, uh, from Antarctica, uh, which is making the waters quite cold off the coast. And then the breezes coming inland are bringing that cold air. Uh, it's just leading to this area where you can make uh, wines that are quite a bit more elegant than a lot of the other places in South Africa. Although, as we mentioned before, Craig Hawkins from Testalonga is incredibly good at uh, somehow getting finesse out of the Swartland. Um, in this case, again, Cabernet Sauvignon. What's interesting here is uh, uh, Mick and Janine are doing a lot more whole cluster fermentation. Uh, normally, Cabernet Sauvignon, you don't do whole cluster on because the stems are often quite stemmy. Uh, they, they just taste like you know, green crunchy stems, which is not necessarily a flavor that you want in the wine. Um, but because they're super gentle with their extraction and because they're getting the perfect amount of ripeness and, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, this is the perfect site for them to do some whole cluster. Uh, in this case, I believe it's about 70% whole cluster and 20% destemmed fruit, um, fermenting in open top tank. Um, you know, it chills there for, uh, I can't remember how long they're, they're leaving it for, but you know, somewhere around a week, 10 days, um, you know, to get some, some intensity. Uh, and then after that, uh, the wine is pressed off into neutral barrel, chills out in barrel for, you know, basically until the end of, end of, uh, you know, right before the next vintage and then, you know, racking, bottling, nothing super crazy going into this wine as far as winemaking goes, but you're able to get this really, uh, sort of ethereal version of Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously a lot of the famous examples, whether that be from Napa or whether that be from uh, Bordeaux, uh, they're quite physical, quite powerful, uh, quite commanding wines, uh, often very regal. And I think that this is still captures a lot of those characteristics, whether it be sort of the graphite note that you'd associate with really good Cabernet Sauvignon, that little bit of herbaceousness, the dark fruit, um, sort of like the luxurious tannins. It's still getting all those things, but at 12.5% alcohol, as opposed to you know, Napa's, a lot of Cabernet from Napa is, is creeping up over 14%, getting closer to 15% these days. Uh, and so I, I feel like this flavor profile is more uh, in line with, you know, what we like and often what the people in the wine club really like as well, where it's big, it's intense, it's, it's flavorful, um, but it's not cumbersome. It's not going over the top. Um, in the write-up for this particular wine, I decided to just give you my methodology for uh, making steak. Uh, I kept it super simple. Um, again, there's there's so many uh, incredible recommendations for what goes with really good Cabernet Sauvignon that you know it's it's sort of a no-brainer. So I decided to maybe geek out a little bit about uh, you know my my cooking methodology more than anything else. Uh, you can find a, a ton more about uh, both Testalonga and Craven on our website as well, too. So if you're looking for more information about, you know, Mick and Janine, about Craig and Carla, uh, definitely click on the website and read through there as well. It's an, a, an amazing additional resource and, um, you know, it's definitely worth reading through. The stories are pretty funny, as they always are. Uh, and the last wine that we have in the wine club is a super rare wine for us, uh, Mein Klang's Tag. Um, last year, we only got 
oh, I can't even remember, 30 bottles or something like that. Um, so not even enough wine to, to make it into uh, the wine club. This year we got a slightly larger allocation of 60 bottles, but this is one of the rarest wines that Meinklang makes. We've been lucky enough to use quite a few Meinklang wines in the wine club over the years. Um, as one of our biggest producers, it's usually easier to... Um, you know, get the quantities that we require for uh, the the regular natural wine club. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, we get these tiny allocations of sort of the best of the best from, from Meinklang, or if not the best of the best, definitely the most interesting, the wines that they think have the most to say. We've been talking about this a lot lately as well, too, where it's, it's I, I want a wine to tell me something new. I don't need a wine to tell me something I already know. Uh, I want it to show me something new about you know, a grape or about a site or about a vintage or about, you know, it has to have something unique to say. It has to be contributing to the world, essentially. It can't just be another thing. Uh, so Meinklang, located in Austria, in Burgenland, um, just south of Vienna. Um, they're located on essentially the Hungarian side of the lake, uh, or the lake or the side of the lake that's closer to Hungary. Um, and this area is a little bit more sort of like gently rolling hills, a little bit flatter. The soils are definitely easier to work with, so mostly planted on loam. Um, so again, uh, uh, soils that tend to be quite vigorous uh, allow you to grow grapes with quite a bit of ease, uh, which is why they're able to farm so much land biodynamically uh, and still release the wines for a, a really great price. Um, this is essentially a selection of the best of the best of the best of their Gruner Veltliner. Uh, this is coming from their oldest vines. Uh, and what's interesting is they decided to do carbonic maceration on white grapes. You don't really see this. There's very, very few producers that are doing carbonic maceration with white grapes. Normally for white wine um, or, or even orange wine, um, you know, you're crushing the grapes, you're, you're letting the juice spill out of the grapes. And in this case, uh, you're actually letting the, uh, the juice ferment inside the berries for two weeks before they press it off, uh, into what we call concrete eggs. So an egg shaped concrete vessel, um, where it hangs out for an extended period of time before being bottled. Um, this is, again, definitely on the esoteric side of the spectrum. Uh, you know, from a flavor perspective, you're getting tons of uh, interesting things like green tea and guava. Um, for Meinklang's wines in this range, they tend to sort of push the boundaries of things like volatile acidity. Um, so that tartness, that sort of peaky, spiky kind of quality that, that certain uh, natural wines can have. They're definitely not shying away from that. Um, this wine tends to be quite turbid, um, meaning that it's, it's very much on the unfined and unfiltered side, and they're not really uh, going out of their way to rack it to be clear and, and you know, and, and transparent. Uh, they're kind of embracing the fact that uh, they, they kind of like that turbidity. It ends up being sort of this green gold kind of glowy color, and it's, it's really cool. Um, these wines for them uh, in the in the Runic series. So there's there's Tag, there's Morgan, uh, there's Nacht. Um, what's the other one that I'm missing? There's another one in there too. There's four different wines, and they're considered sort of their top sort of most esoteric wines. Um, and for them, they're they're sort of very emotional wines. They're wines that connect with them on sort of a spiritual level uh, that they find again very important. 
uh, and that were necessary to continuing the story of Mind Clang and pushing it in a direction where, uh, again, they're getting even more connection with the land, more connection with a certain vintage, more connection with their cellar even. Uh, their cellar is quite old and underground and has this really interesting uh, sort of feeling to it. And, and so they want to capture all those things. Um, as far as I know, Niklas uh, had a lot of influence in, in convincing them to to test out these wines and be a little more experimental. Uh, and so shout out to him for, uh, for, for making these things come to fruition. Uh, I think you're going to absolutely love it. It's a super cool wine. It's, it's unlike anything that we've included in the wine club so far. And I think this is just such a stunning little, little lineup. Um, I think that's everything that we're going to talk about today. If anybody has any additional questions or suggestions on what we should talk about next time in the wine club, feel free to reach out to us. You can send me an email at Eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Definitely give us a follow on Instagram if you haven't already done that. It's just at Juice Imports. We love chatting with people on there, and we love seeing your photos of the wine club. Uh, And yeah, if you need anything, just reach out. Uh, We love hearing from you. Thanks so much for taking the time. We'll chat soon.